Over the last couple of weeks, as you know, we have been speaking about the importance of steadfastness in trials. And the, and the apostles' kind of overarching thought is this, that steadfastness will have its full effect. And through steadfastness, God will produce a harvest of righteousness in our lives. He will produce Christian character. He will produce maturity. So Paul said, or James says in verse 12, blessed is the man. That word blessed is a ton of weight behind it. It is what the Old Testament prophets used to um, give to people. They would bless them. Blessed is the man. Jesus talks about this in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved or passed the test or proven genuine, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James says that remaining steadfast to certain consequences, remaining steadfast to certain benefits to us, first of all, it leads us into a life of blessing, not only in this life, but also in the life to come, eternal life. So after persevering through a trial, after persevering through a difficult circumstance, going through a valley, we emerge into a life of greater blessedness, greater peace, greater felicity, greater joy. But secondly, having stood the test, we are able to say with greater confidence that our faith is in fact genuine. Remember we said in the first Sunday, we preached on James that, that a test is always a test of faith. It brings us to that place where we question what we truly believe and if we truly believe what we profess to believe. Having gone through the test, we come to that realization that yes, we do indeed believe what we have previously professed. It shows that our faith is in fact genuine. And so next, James begins to speak about temptation. It speaks about sin speaks about that which short-circuits the process of our steadfastness. He doesn't speak about specific sins. He doesn't speak about those issues that he's going to begin to deal with when we look at the next section next week. But he deals with sin in a more general way. Deals with it in a more, um, less specific way. Speaking about temptation. Speaking about sin in our lives, the nature of sin and how we are to deal with it. Because the reality is, if we're going to be steadfast and immovable, if we're going to be living the life that God has called us to live, we are going to be living from today until we see Jesus face to face in a battle with sin. I don't care how old you are, I don't care how mature you are in the Christian walk, I don't care how many sins that you have wrestled to the ground, you are in a battle. It's inevitable that we are called to fight sin in our lives. The illustration that I love to use when I talk about this is, is that we're in a boxing ring. From the time you get saved to the time that God calls you home, you are in that ring. Now the reality is different opponents are stepping in at different times. Different sins confront us at different times in our journey. But we are always in that ring. We are always in the fight. We never stop this battle. 
So what James wants to do is to help us understand strategically how we are to continue to fight. It can become so tiring. It can become so overwhelming, particularly when that same old opponent gets back into the ring with us. So you picture yourself in this, in this boxing ring and you're wearing your boxing shorts, you're looking like Muhammad Ali and all of these guys are sitting out there and there's lust and there's anger and there's laziness and there's dishonesty and there's gossip and they're all just sitting there waiting to jump back into the ring and take a round out of you. And God says, you need to be in the fight. You can't quit this fight. You need to persevere in the fight. So how do we persevere in the fight? How do we continue so that we experience this blessedness that he speaks about? So that we're able to say day after day, fight after fight, week after week, battle after battle, that yes, I am in Christ. I can see his presence. I can see his power. My faith is genuine and live a life of greater blessedness. Well, there's five things I want to point out to you from this passage. So let's read it together. And then we will begin. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, is in his, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." So five strategies if we're going to stay in the ring, if we're going to stay in the battle, or if we're going to fight well. The first is this. Don't excuse or justify your sin. Look what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. James has heard that these Jewish Christians are somehow excusing their sin by saying, well, God's tempting me. God is luring me. God is enticing me into sin. And how can I resist God? Like God is God. And if, and if he is tempting me and if he is luring me and he is the one who is inciting sin in my life, what hope do I have of overcoming sin? How, how can I possibly win this round? How can I win this fight? And, and, and it's an ingenious excuse for continuing, continuing in sin. It's a great rationale for not continuing to struggle with our sin. God's luring me. God's entrapping me. How can I resist? I'm just a mere human. God is so powerful. How in the world am I able to stop if God is the one who is nurturing this in me? How can I resist? I have no hope against the wiles and the schemes of, and the subtleties of God. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever thought that way. I hope that you haven't. It's terrible theology because God doesn't tempt anyone. And he himself is not tempted by sin. But I think a lot of us, although we may not use the rationale that these first century Jews were using, we get to the same conclusion. Very often I've counseled people and talked with people and I've, I've heard, I, I can't help it. I'm a victim. 
It's my environment that causes me to sin. It's my parents' fault. It's my spouse's fault. God hasn't answered my prayer. He's abandoned me. The temptation is too great. And on and on and on go the excuses, which brings us to the conclusion of, I guess I'll just have to live with my sin. I'll just have to make an accommodation for it. It's too big an opponent. I've tried to fight it and I can't win. Sadly, lots of us make accommodation with sin and we just give up the fight. We go sit in the corner of the ring, we sit down on the stool, we take the towel and we throw it in. That opponent, he's just too big. That sin is just too vicious. It's too alluring, too enticing. I can't say no. And many of us live here. We make excuses for our behavior. And we make an uneasy truth, truce with sin. And when this happens, blessing stops. When, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, stays in the fight, stays engaged in the battle. As soon as we make an accommodation for sin in our lives, the blessing of God stops. Oftentimes sin masquerades as blessing and that's sometimes why we luxuriate in it why we make an accommodation for it. But there is nothing attractive, there is nothing about sin that is going to bless or enrich your life. Sin always robs you of the blessing of God. And so if we're gonna be mature, if we're gonna be Christians who are knowing the blessing of God as we continue in this fight, we got to understand that it's foolish to just sit down and let, let sin, let our opponent, kick the daylights out of us. There is nothing wise about that at all. But a lot of us, is, like these Jewish Christians, it appears, have made accommodation. We're okay with faith without works. We're okay with untamed tongues. We're okay with being a slave of lust, prone to conflict and disunity. It's okay to love the world more than Jesus. I've compartmentalized him and we've got a relationship and I get to go to heaven, but at the same time, I get to love the world. And it's not okay. It's not okay for a couple of reasons. One, you rob yourself of huge blessing. But secondly, you stop your growth dead in its tracks. So if we're going to truly experience steadfastness and the blessing of God that comes as a consequence of steadfastness, then we have no choice but to put the gloves back on, get up off the stool, take the towel from the middle of the ring, throw it out of the ring, and just duke it out. Engage in the battle that God has called us to fight. Because it's winnable. It's winnable. Sin need not dominate our lives but it will if we're not fighting the fight, if we're not fighting the good fight. It's a simple point, but it's an important one. Are you in the fight? Are you engaging in the fight? Or have you lost so many times that you've just given up? It's hopeless. I can't win this one. It's just too big. Lust is this just big, huge monster that gets into the ring, and I'm this little boxer, and I just, I can't do it. 
I cannot control my tongue. I want to, but gossip, she's just this big old monster. I don't have any hope against my anger. I want to be slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to become angry, but I just get, they make me angry all the time. This big monster of anger gets in there and I just don't know what to do. Keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Secondly, we've got to recognize the strategy of sin. We need to recognize sin's strategy. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. And then, and then Paul, or the John, James says this, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So he says two things about God. First, God cannot be tempted with evil. Evil, sin, carnality has absolutely no attraction to God because his nature is absolutely pure and holy. God can't sin. And he doesn't tempt anyone with sin. James doesn't even consider their excuse. He doesn't engage with them. He just says, you're wrong, period, full stop. Let's go on. God doesn't lure, entice, tempt, incite anyone to sin. And then he goes on and he explains where temptation comes from. And the journey that it takes is on. And in verses 14 and 15, he, he basically gives us sin's strategy. He tells us what the enemy's going to do. And if you want to defeat an enemy, the best thing to do is know what the enemy's strategy is. Right? And so James helps us understand the strategy of sin. Whatever that sin is, he shows us how sin operates in our lives. And he's basically saying this, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So what is the strategy of sin? Well, first of all, temptation happens when we are lured and incited by our lusts, our evil desires and passions. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So essentially, temptation is not external, it's internal, right? God cannot be tempted because internally, he is perfect, he is pure, his nature is unsullied. So God can sort of see sin and not be lured and enticed by it because he has a perfect, sinless nature. We see the same thing and we are enticed by it because we have a fleshly, carnal, fallen body in which we live, we inhabit it. Our lusts, our flesh, our base desires tempt us and lure us to sin. So understanding this is important. Temptation is not external to us. Temptation is internal. It resides in who we are in the flesh, our unredeemed part. And what happens is that our flesh responds. He uses two words that are associated with hunting and fishing, lure and enticing. He basically talks about a lure or a bait. And he describes sin as this lure, this fascination. And we're attracted. 
like a fish is to a lure, like an animal is to bait, so we too are lured and enticed by sin. But it is something that's going on inside us. It is an internal process. Sin presents itself to us. It's alluring, it's attractive, it's enticing. And we're drawn. It's instinctive. Because we're fallen. One day this body will be redeemed. And I will have a redeemed spirit and a redeemed body. But right now I have a redeemed spirit and a fallen body. And that's a challenge. That's why we are in this fight. But it's at this point when temptation is the most able to be resisted. It's at this point when you understand, you see that sin and you're lured by it, you recognize it as something in your fallenness that is inclining you toward it. This is the moment when you can have victory. This is the moment when you can lay the knockout punch to whatever that big thing in the ring with you is. This is the time you can win. We reach out to a friend for accountability. We pick up the scriptures. We walk away from the computer. We turn off whatever it is that we're doing. We hang up the phone. We don't continue in that conversation. We walk away from the situation. This is the moment when we have the potential to win the battle. Because... If we don't take the opportunity to resist at this moment, the lure of sin will almost always incline us to take the bait. So, so there are the options. You're in the ring. And you have an opportunity to either take the bait or take the opportunity to escape. And if we don't, sort of the second step happens. Our lusts give birth to sin. Our desires give birth to sin. It's not sin to, sinful to be tempted. We all are. But if we give in, if we take the bait, our lusts give birth to sin. Once we have taken the bait, this process happens. And James likens it to conception and birth. As one follows the other, conception, birth follows. Paul, James is saying here, if we take the bait, sin follows. It's an inevitable consequence. One follows the other. As birth follows conception, so too does sin follow unchecked desires. And in that moment when we take the bait, we surrender. We give life, power, and license to sin. If you have your Bibles, I do want to give you an illustration of this where, where the Apostle Paul kind of says it as such. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. And I really like what he says here. Paul's talking about anger, not letting the sun go down on your wrath, dealing with circumstances and situations before you go to bed, basically. He says, be angry, verse 26 of Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity there <clears throat> can be translated place or even license. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
It's almost like we give Satan a license to hit us when we take the bait. It's almost like we say to him, okay, here you go. I'm giving you permission to bring pain and suffering into my life. Here's my chin. Give me your best shot. And when we take the bait, when we give vent, give license to what's inside of us, those fleshly desires, we give Satan license. And of course, he does what he does. The third step, after sin is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin begins to grow. So my daughter had a baby a little over a month ago, and I've already seen that little girl go from like seven pounds, 11 ounces, to nine pounds, six ounces or something. It's just the way it happens. A baby is born, healthy baby's born, and the mom, dad feed that little girl, and she grows. The same thing true with sin in our lives. If we feed it, it grows. It may start off as a small, private, secret baby sin that we love and luxuriate in and tolerate and make accommodation for. But as time goes on, that little sin grows to become a monster. That little thing grows and grows and grows and puts on weight and gets stronger, becomes a monster. And it's after a while that we realize that we are no longer just committing that sin, but we are committed to it. There's a connection that owns us, and we feel helpless before it. And then the fourth step, Paul says, or James says, the fourth step is that sin destroys us. Death. It's played out in two ways. For the non-Christian, it means the lack of blessing, the lack of God's blessing in their lives in this world, and eternal death in hell. For the Christian, the Bible teaches that it represents the lack of God's blessing in this life. And sometimes, God ends our lives prematurely. There's a number of places that speak about that, and I don't have time to go into this as a, as a concept, as a theology. But even in, in 1 Corinthians, and Paul's talking about people who are eating and drinking communion unworthily. And they're not conscious, they're not aware of the body of Christ and the dynamics that's going on there. Paul says, because of that, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are actually asleep, meaning they have died. And so the reality is that if we're not going to fight this fight, if we're just going to give in, give up, and just lay back into the arms of sin and luxuriate in it, and have these secret monsters in our lives that we think nobody else knows about, and just get comfortable with it, God's business is to discipline and sometimes take us to heaven. And we need to be aware of that. So that's the strategy of sin. It begins in our sinful inclinations. You can't blame pornography. You can't blame that guy in the small group who is always talking over you and makes you angry. You, can't, you don't get to do that. The blame resides within. We are fallen fleshly creatures who love sin. And when it tempts us, the blame resides with us when we take the bait. And as we take the bait, it begins to control us. 
It goes from conception to birth, and then it begins to grow. And ultimately, as it dominates our lives, it robs us of the blessing and brings ultimate death. Not for a Christian. Not for a Christian. But sometimes, as I said, God will take the life of a Christian who stubbornly refuses to enter the battle with sin. Third thing Paul, James says is this. Don't deceive yourself about this. Don't deceive yourself about this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, brothers and sisters. Now, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about what comes afterwards? Maybe. I, I, I still think that he's talking about this whole idea that I'm helpless. I, I have no capacity to deal with this thing. I can't wrestle the sin, sin to the ground. There's lots of other sins out there that are waiting to get into the ring, but I can't deal with this one. It's just too big an issue. I think that's what he's talking about. Don't deceive yourself about sin. The way he writes it implies that those who he's addressing have been lying and deceiving themselves, and James basically saying, stop it. Quit lying to yourself about this. So the lie they have been believing, I think, is still this. God's tempting me. I'm a victim. I can't overcome my sin. It's too big an obstacle in my life. And the fact is that before you came to Christ, that was exactly true. Before you came to Christ, the Bible says that you were a slave of sin. But when God saved you, he gave you a new nature. And he put you into the ring. And he's given you the capacity to fight successfully all the days of your lives so that you deal with one opponent and he goes slinking away and then you deal with the next and then you deal with the next and you deal with the next and you deal with the next and you keep on keeping on steadfastly fighting the fight of faith fighting the fight that God has called you to do and experiencing his blessing in your life as you steadfastly refuse to give up the fight We have a new nature. And as a consequence, what the scripture says is that when we choose to sin, we choose to sin. Before, we didn't have a choice. Before, it wasn't, it wasn't our capacity to say no. Our nature and our flesh were slaves. But God has freed us. God has liberated us. He has given us a new nature. And so we have a choice. We operate out of a new nature or we operate out of the flesh. And when we operate out of the flesh, we are choosing. We are volitionally making a decision. And until we embrace the truth that sin shall no longer be master over us, until we embrace the decision that I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, until I embrace the decision that I can, by the grace of God, win this battle, we will be incapable of fighting this fight. We've got to come to that place where we say there is no sin, no addiction, no behavior over which God, by his Holy Spirit, has not given me dominion and victory. Now, do you believe that? Or are you deceived? Like when you think in, in the deepest recesses of your life, when you think about the issues that you are wrestling with, 
the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the anger. When you think about those things, do you honestly believe that there is no sin over which God has not given you dominion through the power of his Holy Spirit, or are you deceived? Because if you're deceived, I want you to know the truth. You are not a slave of sin. That is not your definition. That's not who you are. That is not who God has created you to be. You are a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are indwelt by the spirit of the living God himself. And you, by his grace, have the potential to live differently. You'll never be perfect. But that enemy that you've wrestled with for such a long time does not need to have dominion over you. You can be freed, and God will introduce you to another one. And that's been my experience in my life. You know, when you're a young man, you deal with lust, and you deal with, you know, I want to be rich, and I want to be significant. And you get to be an older man, and you realize, you know what? I am so proud. I didn't even know he was waiting for me out there. But he lumbers up into the ring. And now you've got another fight on your hand. You know what? Maybe, by God's grace, if I ever become humble, there'll be something that, there will be. There will be. It's just a fight that goes on. But... Is the opponent changing? Is that guy in the ring, that gal in the ring that you're fighting, the same one that you've been fighting for five, seven, ten years, and they've just sort of thrown up your hands and said, I can't do anything about this? Because that's sad. There's so much blessing, so much joy, so much peace that you're missing out on. Paul says we have a choice not to let sin reign in our, body, our mortal bodies that we would obey its lusts. So what do we do? Well, we look to God. <clears throat> we look to God for victory. Once again, James says two things about God. He is the source of every good and perfect gift. And he doesn't change. God is the source of everything that you and I need to live a holy, transformed life. And he doesn't change. You know, if you don't believe those two things, if you think that it's up to you, or if somehow you believe that you can sort of change the goalposts of morality and get away with it, you're wrong. You can't. Don't be deceived about this either. Don't be deceived about it. You can't change the goalpost. God does not change. His definition, his understanding of ethics and morality and truth and righteousness and sin does not change. And the other thing that doesn't change is that he is the source. He alone is the source of righteousness. You can't win this alone. You need to know that he is in the corner with you. As a matter of fact, he is in you. He's not just in your corner. He is in you. And he is fighting this fight with you and on your behalf and for you. So we boast in our weaknesses for apart from him we can do nothing. We look to him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Remember that he is the vine and that we are the branches and without him we can do nothing. We remember that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but they are divinely powerful. 
And we don't change the goalposts. We don't change the definition of right and wrong to make it easier. We fight the fight knowing that in Christ, by his spirit, we have an ally who when we put the gloves on and get off the stool and even begin to start wrestling again, start this fight again, he's with you. And he will empower and strengthen and enable you. And then fifthly and finally, we celebrate God's plan for sin. I want to spend just a few minutes here because I've only got a few minutes. He says this, by his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, by the gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James tells these first century Jewish believers in about 40 AD, 10, 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus, that they had been born again through the powerful working of the Spirit of God, through the gospel. God by his will, brought them forth from death into life, from spiritual death to life. And now they are the first fruits of a whole new creation that God is about to usher in. Basically what James is saying to these Jews is, listen, what God has done in your life, he's gonna do in the lives of Gentiles. And what Christ started at his resurrection is gonna spread like wildfire throughout the world. What God has done in your life, what God is doing in your life, therefore, becomes a template, becomes an illustration, the first fruits of what God is going to do throughout the world in the lives of others. These first century Jews understood that they, in Christ, were the first fruits of a whole new kind of humanity. So how does this help us? Well, when we struggle with sin, we need to see what God has already done. So understand this. The opposition that you're wrestling with right now or that big monster in the ring and you're just sitting there and the gloves are off and you've thrown in the towel, understand that defeating him, defeating her, is nothing compared to the miracle that God did when he saved you and by his will brought you forth through the word of truth, the gospel. That is the most magnificent thing that will ever happen in my life. No matter the sins that I am able to wrestle to the ground and deal with, no matter the sins that you're able to kick out of that ring and send them away whimpering and beaten, none of those victories will begin to even compare to the miracle that God did when he saved you by his will and brought you forth, caused you to be born again by the word of truth, by the Word of the gospel. You're a miracle. And you are going to continue, by God's grace, if you stay in the fight and look to him, you are going to continue to see that miracle of the new birth lived out day to day to day. You're going to look back on your life by his grace and you're going to see different opponents vanquished and beaten as you steadfastly continue in the fight. But know this too. There are people here who are further down the journey and they are first fruits for you. 
I would venture to guess there's people in this room right now who have wrestled with the monster of pornography and defeated it. God has worked a harvest of righteousness in his or her life. And their life is a testimony to the fact that God is bigger than that sin. Find that brother, find that sister, and get together with them and talk about it. There are people in this room who were quick to speak and slow to listen and quick to become angry. And they are now gentle, quiet people who are slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. And they are the first fruits of God's grace in this church. Find that person if you're angry. There's people in this church who have forgiven the unforgivable by the grace of God. And they have wrestled it to the ground. Their outrage was absolutely horrific. What was done to them should never have been done. But by the grace of God, they were able to give someone else the grace that God has given to them. If you're bitter, find that person. Go and find them. See, this is why your testimony is such a critical thing. This is why your humility to share the testimony is such a critical thing. Because it breathes hope into the life of someone who is wrestling with that same issue. There are people here who used to slander and gossip others who could not control their tongue. It was sharp and it was vicious, filled with vitriol. And now they are encouraging others. Loving others by covering a multitude of sins, right? Find that person if you can't control your tongue. Have them pray with you. Talk to them about their battle. And trust that God will give you the capacity to win that fight. We are new creatures in Christ. That is who you are if you were born again. If you have come to that place in your journey where you have recognized that what Jesus did on the cross, taking taking your sin and God's punishment, if you have believed in him, you are a new creature in Christ. That's the most magnificent miracle that has ever happened. Believe that God can continue to transform you. He has removed the penalty of sin. He has broken the power of sin. And one day, he will take us from the presence of sin eternally. But right now, we are in a fight. And so I just want to encourage you. Stay in the fight. Don't give up. Even though you got beat up yesterday, get up off your knees. God loves you. His love is unconditional and absolute if you're in Christ. Go to him. Put the gloves back on. Get up off that stool and start fighting. Because remember, uncontested sin will prevent you from knowing the blessing of God and being all that God has called you to be. So we're going to have a time of repentance now. And you may need to repent of one of these five things. Perhaps you have accommodated or excused and are accommodating and excusing sin. Maybe you're just not counterpunching at the right time. You're giving vent to your sin. You're giving life to it. And you're giving Satan license. Maybe you've believed for such a long time that you can't change. And you've doubted the power and the grace of God. You haven't been looking to God for the victory. 
mean, pulling up your socks and screwing up your courage and saying, watch me, God, I can do this without even beginning to reach out to him for his grace and his strength. You need to repent of that. Maybe you've never really understood why God saved you. To transform and change and grow you into an illustration of first fruits. It can be such an encouragement to someone else. You keep your victory quiet because it's embarrassing. Don't want to talk about it. Repent of that. Boast about what God has done in your life. Give him the glory. You'll be such an encouragement to some brother or sister. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sin is such a hard thing. And we wrestle. Sometimes we just give up. We feel overwhelmed. I pray, Father, that by your grace you'd get us back in the fight. And if there are things that are preventing us from engaging in this battle, if we've given up, if we're on the sidelines, if we're just allowing sin and Satan to push us around and mock us, Father, I just pray that you would bring repentance. The Bible says the kindness of God leads us to that. Lord, would you be kind to us today? Would you give us hope, courage, that we can be what you've called us to be, that we might be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord and the fight that you've called us to fight. We ask that you would work in our hearts now, Lord, for your glory and for our blessing as we repent of these things and change and leave this place different by your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.